Well, good morning, Christ City. Today we conclude our series in Lamentations by looking at Lamentations 5, 19-22 and Psalm 77. And some of you may be wondering what Psalm 77 is doing at the end of a series in Lamentations. Still others of you, you notice the connection. The poet of Lamentations and the psalmist of Psalm 77 are both asking the same question this morning. Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten us? Now, their cause for lament is different. Lamentations, as you well know by now, is lamenting the judgment of God resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylonian forces. And now, years later, they still wonder, has God forgotten us? Has he forgotten us? In Psalm 77, the lament is much more personal. It's much more personal. The event likely less dramatic. Yet there is trouble nonetheless. Trouble that God has not removed from the psalmist. You hold my eyelids open, we read this morning. And so he asked too, on behalf of the people, has God forgotten us? Has he forgotten us? Have you ever asked that question before? Has God forgotten us? Now before you answer, remember, to call on God to remember you, to not forget you, is to call on him to graciously intervene in your life. So when we wonder, has God forgotten me? We're not wondering if he is just simply mindful of us. We're wondering if his kind heart towards us remains the same. We're asking with the psalmist, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And so let me rephrase it. Have you ever wondered if God's heart towards you has changed? If, because of something you've said or done, or something said or done to you, his heart has been irrevocably altered towards you? If the relationship is beyond repair? I have. I've wondered that before. And not just years ago, but recently this past week even. If God is for us and with us and on our side and loves us, why am I only preaching to a camera this weekend? Why, instead of having the joy of gathering with many of you in person, in person for worship, word, and sacrament, we will be once again forced to exist in a screen. I'm on a screen. You're on a screen. We're all on screens. Lord, has all your grace run dry when it comes to us and to our church? How about when it comes to me? Now, I get that for some of you, this might just sound like another time around the mountain in Lamentations. And you were done with Lamentations, frankly, in week three. But if you're like me, you are still slowly, slowly learning not only how to lament, but you're beginning to feel in this season like you might actually need to lament. I want to, I want to spending our time in Psalm 77 this morning, speak three things to us as a church community for this moment. And I want us to notice something. Each one of these three things begins with, we must. We must. 
the furnace of this season is turned to such a temperature that we will no longer survive if we are self-deceived in thinking that any of these three things are optional. Friends, hear me as clearly as I can make myself this morning. We must persist in these three things. Look at them on the screen with me. We must this morning persist in prayer. We must continually remember our Exodus story. And we must, we have to, friends, stay close to our shepherd. So let's read Psalm 77, verses 1 to 3 uh, together. And there the psalmist writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. And when I meditate, my spirit faints. The psalmist writes, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Now, I want to put some art on the screen that comes from the catacombs of Priscilla and can be dated back to the third century church. I want you to look at that. We'll leave it up there for a bit. And I want you to notice the posture of the woman in the middle. One of the earliest recordings of Christian worship tells us that they would pray standing up and with their arms outstretched. It's called the Oran's position. The Oran's position. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Especially when we compare it uh, to our prayer position today of the emoji prayer hands a little bit more theologically robust in the third century, right? This posture, which was not unique to Christianity, is a sign, as it were, of some sort of like heavenly begging. It's heavenly begging, like we've seen all throughout Lamentations. And something like this is what the psalmist is doing. In stretching out his hands, he is begging, pleading with God. In verse 2, It tells us that the psalmist refuses to be comforted. There is going on in him a numbness of heart. A numbness of heart. When verse 3 says, When I meditate, my spirit faints, it has the sense in this verse of life leaving the body, of life being sucked out of the body, as it were. A frail and feeble grasp on life is all that remains. Again, think of a beggar at the side of the road, perishing, doing poorly, crying out, hands outstretched for help. This is the beginning of this psalm. And I want us to notice something here. I want us to notice something that is so counterintuitive as to what you and I think about God and how he relates to us. Notice this in these first three verses. Notice, it is his remembering of God that causes him to groan, that causes his pain. And we say, hold on a second, stop. God is nice and God is good and he wants nice and good things for me. What's with this? Why is the remembering of God in this psalm causing the psalmist to groan, to have life, feels like it's been sucked out of him? And here's the answer. And I want us to just sit with this. Here's what I think the answer is to this question. If your prayer life, if your prayer life only contains conversations with God and a God who always and only affirms you, who never holds up a mirror to your sin, 
who doesn't force you to wrestle with your suffering and his sovereignty, then friends, you have likely just been talking to yourself. If we are going to persist in prayer, we must expect that it will expose us. It will show us to be needy beggars. And if I can go one step even further, that means this. In my life, And in your life, when I don't pray and when you don't pray, it is a sign and a symptom of pride. Of pride. My hands are not in the Oran's position. They are tightly gripping the wheel of my life. I've got this. I'm in control. Prayerlessness is a warning light of pride in my heart and in your heart. And that pride must be eradicated must be put to death. And let me ask just even further, how is that mission of self-sufficiency going? How's that going? How's that working out for you in this time? For me, it's going and it's gone terribly. We must. We have no choice in the matter. We must persist in prayer to the God who hears us. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me, our psalmist writes. We must persist in prayer. Let me just say this. If you're listening and you're like, I want this, I don't know how, call your community group leader today. Send me a message today. Send Heath a message today. We would love to pray with and for you. Friends, in this season, indeed in every season, we must, we have no option, we must persist in prayer. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. We must, we have to, we have to remember our Exodus story. Notice the movement from lament to trust that takes place in this psalm. It happens in verses 10 to 11. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Notice, again, the psalmist remembers. Except this time, the experience of remembering is entirely different, isn't it? The first time around, remembering led to beggar-like moaning. This second time around, remembering will lead to joyful delight. But don't miss that order. Don't miss that order. We come to God as beggars, and he fills us. He fills our hands. We come to God as the sick, and he makes us well. We come to God as creatures, feeble, frail creatures, and our creator gives us what we need what we need. We're not coming to a peer. We're not coming to an equal. We come to the God, our psalmist tells us, who is holy, works wonders, and makes known his might among the peoples, amongst the nations. Having begun properly, the psalmist now receives fully. So don't miss that order. His remembering leads to delight. And what he remembers is of utmost importance. Look at verses 16 to 20. 
Verses 16 to 20 in Psalm 77 are retelling the Exodus story, the definitive saving event for Israel. When Israel doubted whether or not God was for them and loved them and cared about them, when they were asking, has God forgotten us, they would remember this story. This story. And if you don't know it, really quickly, here is the Exodus story in 20 seconds. The children of Jacob and Joseph, once guests of Pharaoh, are now enslaved by the Pharaoh, and God remembers them. He acts graciously, and he sends Moses and Aaron to deliver his people through signs and and, and wonders. Israel leaves Egypt, but soon the Egyptian army is at their heels, and they're staring at a body of water. Israel is. They're staring at a body of water they cannot cross. It is a hopeless situation. Surely God has abandoned them. Surely God has forgotten them. And then what happens? God makes a way. Your way was through the sea, the psalmist writes. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. God parts the waters and Israel is saved. And friends, we like Israel, we must not forget, have an exodus moment. We have a story that we are supposed to go back to time and time and time again when we're asking, has God forgotten us? We need to locate ourselves in this story. See, God took what appeared to be a hopeless situation, the crucifixion of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ, and he made a way through that event for you and I to cross from death into new life. We have an Exodus story. The Exodus story isn't just their story, but it's now our story in Christ. See, we too were once slaves to sin, but now we're freed to serve God. We too once had the angel of death hovering over us, God's wrath hovering over us, but the blood of Christ has now been poured out on our doorposts. We too today, later on, will participate in the eating of a meal, the Lord's Supper. And this meal reminds us that we've been liberated from. It reminds us who we are. And it reminds us to whom we belong today. See, for those of us who are wandering in this season, aimlessly, feeling disconnected, out of whack, confused, for those of us who are wandering in this season where it feels like everything, our rhythms and our jobs and our communities have been stripped from us, where we feel detached, the antidote this morning is to locate ourselves in our Exodus story with the rest of the church. That's the antidote. A story that we see in Egypt, a story that climaxes in the cross of Christ, and a story we continue to walk in today. One commentator, he writes about these verses and the effect it has on the poet. He says there's a dual effect going on here, on the poet and in the community. And he says this, not only in view of the Exodus story are his troubles dwarfed and forgotten, but Our picture of the world is given a corrective, and we need this corrective this morning. It's given a corrective against any impression of autonomous forces and an absentee creator. Let me just say that so clearly. Our world is not run by autonomous forces or created and upheld by an absentee creator. From the beginning of time, 
God has been sovereignly orchestrating all things, including what we experience today, right now, for his glory and our good. And I want to stop, and if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, and you're listening to this, I want to ask you, just very plainly, what hope does your story give you this morning? What hope does your story give you in this season where the furnace is blazing, where the pressure is being felt, where it's palpable? Our story gives us hope even in trials, perhaps especially in trials. Friends, we must remember our exodus. We must again and again remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us, what is true now of our current circumstances and what will be true of our future. Last thing, Last thing we must do in this season, we must stay close to our shepherd. The very last verse of Psalm 77 says this, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And think about this with me. The God who is holy, before whom the waters move in fear, the one who sends clouds to pour out water, the God who revealed himself in thunder and lightning and smoke on Mount Sinai as he gives Israel the law, the one who is altogether above us and beyond us is also the one who leads Israel and now leads us by our hand. Like children. For Israel, God led them by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And for us, God led us out of slavery and leads us today by the very hand of his son, Jesus, who holds us and guides us and watches over us even now. I want to end this morning by telling a story that begins in the 14th and 15th century and ends much more closer to our day. I heard this story as I was in a class this week. In the 14th and 15th century, there lived a woman named Julian of Norwich. Uh, she had what she believed to be these revelations from God in her early years as she, as she lied on her, her deathbed, visions, as it were, that she then spent 15 years contemplating. Make of that what you will. And famously, in one of these visions, Julian speaks about holding a hazelnut in her hand. And she realizes in this vision that it exists and continues to exist because God cares for it, because God cares for it. Now, whether or not we'd agree with the legitimacy of Julian's visions or not, we, we, we can talk about that later. But I want us to hear about what she writes about this vision of holding a hazelnut. And I think we'd find that it readily agrees with Scripture. Julian of Norwich, almost 700 years ago, writes this. In this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. She's talking about the hazelnut. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God preserves it. But what did I see in it? She says this. It is that God is the creator and the protector and the lover. Many years later, a man named Jim Houston, who helped found a regent college here in Vancouver, was going to visit another theologian by the name of Claus Bachmuel who was a great theologian in his own right. A German guy had studied under Karl Barth. And Claus was failing in health at the time, and Houston, a church historian, had brought Claus uh, a hazelnut and the story of Julian 
of Norwich. Now, Houston was unsure if Bachmuel would appreciate the story. After all, Bachmuel was a staunch German Protestant, and Julian of Norwich was usually only talked about amongst Catholics. But he left that day, having told Claus a story and having given him a hazelnut of his own. A few weeks later, Claus, failing in health, died. And underneath his pillow, they found the hazelnut given to him only a few weeks later by Jim. Except the hazelnut, as they examined it, was found to be broken. Claus had clung onto it so hard in his final days that it had cracked. There is a lesson to be learned this morning, friends, from this dying man. We are promised nothing in this world. Not health, not prosperity, not fun and adventure, not travel or luxury. We are promised nothing in this world. Everything we try to hold on to will, if we hold on tight enough, fall through our hands like sand and disappear. But this and only this remains. If a hazelnut exists because God upholds it by the very word of his power, our creator, our protector, our lover, and our good shepherd will surely hold us in this time will surely cling to us in this time. And that is the good news of this season. We must persist in prayer. We must always be remembering our own Exodus story. And we must, we must, we have to, we have to stay close to, abide in our good shepherd. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, we ask this morning that we would abide in you that we would abide in you, our creator, our protector, and our lover, our good shepherd who watches over us even now. Pray these in your name. Amen.